Well, it's uh, it's good to it's good to see some new faces. We've got we've got a, some new friends with us today. So for those of you that are visiting with us today, thank you for joining us. Um, we are currently I'll just kind of give you an update where we're at. We are currently preaching through the Old Testament book of Exodus. So it is it's primarily our pattern to just take books of the Bible and, and walk through them. Uh, some, somebody, uh, I think, was glancing ahead and noticed that, that Exodus is a, a rather lengthy book. Uh, we've, we've already been there, uh, I think we started at the beginning of the year, so already several months. Um, good news, uh, we're actually going gonna to get uh, to about the halfway point. We're going to get through the, the Red Sea events, if you're familiar with the book. And then we're going we're gonna to hit the pause button for a moment, and then we'll, we're going to do a few other things, and then we'll, we'll come back later down the road and, and pick up the rest of Exodus. So uh, I, I hope you're enjoying the, the sermon series, though. I know that I've enjoyed uh, preaching it. Um, so if you, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to, to open that up or, or turn that on with an app uh, this morning uh, to Exodus chapter 11. Um, the, way, um, the way this passage actually works is kind of like a bridge. Um, so chapters 11 and 12 uh, cover um, this final plague and the preparations for it. Um, and so here's how I, I've chosen to handle this. We're going we're gonna to kind of cover the, the front and the back end of the bridge. And then next week, we're going we're gonna to deal with the, the middle part of the bridge. So I, I think once we read the text, you'll see what's going on. Um, but I'm going to begin reading this morning. We're going to jump right into the text in chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. So all of chapter 11. And then we're going to hop over the bridge uh, and pick up in verse 29 of chapter 12. And, and go down just to verse 32 right there. So just a couple verses that kind of close out the event a bit. So let's listen to the reading of God's word from Exodus chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now skipping over to verse 29 of chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, 
and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless now the preaching of it. Father, we, we need your help. Um, unless you, by your spirit, would open eyes to see and hearts to believe and ears to hear, Lord, these remain um, distant events in history that have no relevance for our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that we would walk away from your word changed because we believe it is the very word of the living God. And so, please, Holy Spirit, come now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I, I share from time to time what is on our uh, TV-watching um, schedule in our home, and one of those shows that, honestly, um, I've kind of given up on, but, but it, it's one of Heather's favorites, and, and, and I know, I know I'm about to trample on, like, most of the women in this room um, and, and your vision of this show, uh, but the show Fixer Upper right? You guys familiar with Fixer Upper? You, you know, Saint Chip and Mother Joanna, you know, like <laughs> Chip and Joanna Gaines, I think is their last name. Um, if you're not familiar, let me give you the, the brief synopsis of this show. Uh, this, this couple, who are, are just rock stars, um, they, they, they help people uh, fix their homes up. And the premise of the show, from what my understanding was, that they, they bought homes um, that really needed help. Um, and, and so that sometimes they would have like really major issues. Um, but I read an article this week, um, you know, fact checker here. Um, truth be told, most of the work that they do is just cosmetic. Um, it's, it's, it's giving it the, the flair and the appeal, right? It's updating things. It's, I, think, I think my wife calls it, it's the rustic chic look. Did I, yeah, I think that's a, like the, the farmhouse kind of look thing. Um, and, and, and what, what this article described was how most of the homes that they help um, really don't need the updates they're doing. It's, it's for the, the, the appeal of the eye, right? It's, it's, it's aesthetic in nature. It's kind of surface level stuff. And um, it got me thinking that we, we, do, we do the same thing with God. Um, I, th I think sometimes... And, and listen, Christian, we, we have lingo, um, and, and one of our kind of hot words that we like to use a lot is, is being saved. We're, we're saved, right? We have salvation from God. And, and one of the dangers with having a word that has just been so used is, is, is we lose its meaning. And, and I think as Christians, here's what we do with God, which Chip and Joanna do with houses, is we largely think the work that God's doing in our life is, is cosmetic. It's kind of just aesthetically pleasing. Um, it's cleaning up lifestyles, bad habits and vices. Um, it's, it's, kind of, it's a fitness program of, of just being better, uh, trying harder, you know, doing the right thing. It's very cosmetic in nature. Um, when the, the truth is, we are, we are not homes, using, keeping the metaphor intact here, we are not homes 
who have minor flaws that need updated. Um, We are homes that are worthy of condemnation, that need to be gutted from the inside out, like down to the studs of the house. Um, like, Like deep, deep foundational work has to happen in our lives. And um, and, and this passage, I think, really helps us to understand what that actually looks like. And so here's, here's kind of the big picture question that over the, the next two weeks, actually, I'm trying to answer. It's really simple, and it's this. What exactly is the Christian saved from? When we, when we talk about salvation, what are we talking about? Um, and so here's, here's how we're going to look at it. Uh, this week, we're going to look at, at more of the what of salvation. So kind of some of the, the components and categories of what we're being saved from. And then next week, as we, we'll actually jump back in the text and we'll cover that section that we jumped over, we're going to look at the how of it. It's like, how does God do the work? What is, what is necessary to do that work? So um, this week, uh, looking at this passage and the final plague, if you haven't been with us, this is the 10th and final plague um, that God has, is delivering uh, on Egypt and is Israel subsequently. Um, and there are three things that I, th- that I think we see um, salvation or being saved from, and, and they're these. So if you're note takers, here's, here's the, the three things we'll, we'll hang the hooks on today. Uh, first, there is salvation from hostility. Secondly, there's salvation from justice. And then thirdly, there's salvation from wrath. So let's talk about uh, salvation from hostility. Um, regardless of your uh, familiarity with this book, um, it's my conviction, and I haven't come up with this on my own, um, but, but l- largely this book tells the story and the outworking of one verse. Uh, the verse is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You don't have to flip there, but in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God has, um, is, is now placing his curses on humanity for their rebellion against him and on the serpent, if you're familiar with the, the creation account in the garden. And in Genesis chapter three, God talks about, he's speaking to the serpent, the enmity, the animosity, the hostility that there will be in this world between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Um, and, and, and largely this book, this book that can be so overwhelming, in my opinion, can be summarized as the outworking of that verse. And so every event we see here and in our lives is an outworking of the hostility between good and evil, the hostility between God's people and the world. And what, what, we've, what we've come across in Exodus is to this point in, in the recording of history in the Bible, the climactic tension between God's people and Egypt. Um, let me remind you, if you haven't been with us, the Israelites have now been enslaved for over 400 years. So generation after generation after generation of God's people have been born in bondage in Egypt. 
And so for, for those that are living at this time and, and watching these plagues unfold before their eyes, all they've ever known is hostility, oppression, suffering, evil. And what we begin to see is God bring good out of it. Um, if, if you've been with us a long time, uh, we, uh, James Adair actually preached a sermon in Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, God predicted what would happen in this passage. And the prediction sounded like this, I will bring judgment and my people will come out of judgment with great possessions. Right, did you pick up on that? Uh, beginning of uh, verse um, uh, 2 uh, it says that uh, when they ask, when the, when the Israelites ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. So God begins to, to, to show this, what, what I would call a, a principle of the gospel of God working out hostility both among people and with himself. Did you catch that verse three? The Egyptians are leaving with favor I mean, the Israelites are leaving with favor from the Egyptians. Moses' name is now, it's revered, it's, it's now honored. He, he begins to show them this principle of the gospel that salvation removes hostility both vertically, relationally, and horizontal. I'm sorry, horizontally, relationally, and vertically with God. He begins to show them the principle of God making enemies his friends. For those of you that are married, um, you'll probably get this more than others. Um, but have you ever, um, you know, you wake up, uh, you know, you, you wake up and, and the spouse and you kind of aren't vibing and, uh, and you begin to think in your mind, is she mad at me? Like, did, did I do something that I forgot about? And so you're kind of, you know, you're beginning the day, you're getting the kids breakfast and you guys are kind of like, you know, two trains passing in the night. And, um, and, and, and in your mind, you're, you're saying, I must have done something to deserve this treatment I'm getting. And that, that soundtrack of, are you mad at me is playing in the back of your mind. You know what I'm talking about. And then you ask your wife and you probably did do something um, that, that perturbed her. Um, but I think a lot of us relate to God like that. I think a lot of us are wondering, are you mad at me, God? Like when things go wrong. Like, I think that's what the Israelites certainly would have been doing. God, what do we do to deserve this? Are you mad at me? And um, God begins slowly through process to unravel the hostility, right? Slow little moments. It's not always flash in the pan, big stuff. But he begins to show them how hostility between he and his people and his people and people is being removed. Enemies are becoming friends. So salvation from hostility begins to reveal itself. But a, a second thing uh, that we see is salvation from justice actually happen. Um, a number of years ago, I didn't, I didn't fact check, maybe about 10 years ago, a book was written, it's called Unbroken. 
there was also a movie uh, produced by the book is better by the way if you're if you're into reading um, the the movie or the book and movie subsequently uh, unbroken is about a man named uh, Louis Zamperini who was a World War II fighter and he got uh, he was captured uh, in war and was put into a, a, a Japanese uh, prison um, and he was tortured for many years and um, and and in the in the movie I think it's actually in the movie and not in the book um, the book's still better but in the movie there's this really powerful scene um, in fact if you've seen the cover of the movie it it's actually the the scene that they put on the cover of the movie um, in this movie it's towards the end of his um, his arrest and his torture. He's been tortured for years and years and years um, by a man named, they called the bird. Uh, the, the bird was, was this Louis Zamperini's chief tormentor. Uh, and in this powerful scene, um, the bird asks this man to take a heavy wooden log and to hold it over his head. And to not put it down or he would be beat. And in this powerful scene, I mean, at this point, um, you know, the man is malnourished. He's been mistreated for years. He's already bruised and broken and crushed. But he absolutely refuses to put the log down. And you see in his eyes this fixation to not succumb to the pressures of evil to not fall under the weight and the burden that this man has put upon him. And, it, and it's, a, it's a powerful, powerful scene of what oppression and suffering can do to an individual. Um, spoiler alert, um, it, it turns out good for, for Zamperini, um, but, but before it turns out good, uh, the oppression and the evil and the years of suffering had turned him bitter, right? And resentful and angry and hostile, certainly towards his, you know, to the ones who were ruling and oppressing over him, but even towards God. And so you begin to ask, you know, what, what does that do to an individual and what does that do to a, a group of people who are under circumstances like that? who every corner they face is a new level or a new encounter with their own evil. And so with the individual, it creates hostility. It creates isolation, certainly stimulates doubt and cynicism in them. But as a people, and this is the Israelites, it obliterates their identity and their purpose. And, and here's the question that, that comes up at the end of it all, in the, in the, in the insides of, of those under the evil. Why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. God, what did I do to deserve this? And so the question of fairness comes up and God unpacks the, um, the final blow um, in fact, the word used here, instead of plague, like it's used everywhere else, is the word nadah, which means blow. It's a death blow. It's the final thing that would bring Egypt to its knees, but also show Israel how God's working through the evil and suffering. And so let's just quickly unpack the, the death blow. First off, 
everyone in Egypt is affected by it. Everyone. Um, Israel included. We'll look at that next week. Um, but, but they fell under this curse too. Um, so, so the way most think of this is it was the firstborn son of every human living father at the time. So from the youngest of ages to even grown men, the firstborn of the, of the father who was alive was, was dead in the home. Um, and, and if you noticed, it wasn't just people, but it, it also affected the livestock of Egypt. So childless families, they were under the curse too. Um, and so the question that comes to my mind, and I hope it comes to yours, is, is God cruel? Is he unjust? What kind of God would, would kill seemingly innocent children? It's a fair question. Um, we are a church who believes in confessions of faith and one, of our, part of our, one article of our confession of faith is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism and it's just this helpful tool that helps us to, to understand what we believe. And one of the questions is just simple, what is God? But it's got this profound answer and the answer uh, that many of our children memorize or try to is God is a spirit, he's infinite, eternal and unchangeable and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. God is eternal and unchangeable in his justice. Uh, Oxford Dictionary, uh, you know, it's always so helpful. I, I looked up how they define justice. I found it helpful. It's justice is the quality of being fair and reasonable. That's what justice is. And so our belief about God is that he is eternally and perfectly fair and reasonable. He's just. He's not extreme. He's not heavy-handed. He's just. And justice here is putting people to death. Now, if that doesn't ruffle your feathers a little bit, um, you're not hearing me clearly. Death is justice. Because death is the earned merit of rebellion against an eternal God. And so, you know, I, I never make assumptions in, in our size church, but I think there are some of us who think when we hear terms like sin or rebellion or those types of things, we just think it's kind of like minor rule breaking like poor church attendance or lack of Bible reading or didn't pray enough, like those things aren't really worthy of death in my mind. But if you begin to understand um, God's justice in our rebellion in the terms the Bible does is, is that our offense against God is eternal in, in length. In other words, our tyranny, we can look at it as tyranny, our shaking the fist at the one who rules the universe, which is what we do when we sin, is worthy of eternal death. And how did it leave Moses? Hot and angry. Did you catch that? Moses left his encounter with Pharaoh hot with anger. Now, we don't know all the ins and outs of that, but I think part of it is his anger stemmed from he sensed that God was being unjust. 
unfair. And if you lift up the hood of anger, like in all of our lives, let's just kind of get applicable here. Like you kind of go under the hood of what anger is. Anger really simply can be boiled down to this, thinking God owes you more than he does. Um, Really the root of our anger is us saying, God, my life should be better than it actually is. It's where anger comes from. That's what's all up under that. Is things aren't going my way and they ought to be because I deserve more. So this passage does this for us. It begins to show us how salvation closes the gap between justice and our reality with grace. And so it shows us what we actually deserve. It shows us what is fair and reasonable. Nothing short of death. Um, we, we just took, members just took vows. If you heard it in that first vow, do you believe yourself to be a sinner in God's sight, justly deserving of his displeasure? And so that's what we deserve. That's where justice leaves us. If you want fairness, that's what you'll get. But our reality is we get something so much more. See, the gospel principle shows us that God gives us favor and blessing and acceptance by grace alone. And so salvation begins to repackage and redefine what justice actually is. And it's in terms of grace and not what we deserve. So that's what salvation from justice looks like. But lastly, and I'm going to be briefest on this because this kind of overlaps with what we're going to talk about next week, is you see salvation from wrath. Um, the Israelites, we're going to kind of flip to verse 29 of chapter 12. Now, the Israelites um, operated, uh, and the Egyptian culture, operated on a lunar calendar. And so scholars, they've done all the work. I didn't do the work. Scholars have identified that this event historically happened on the 14th of, of the month, which would have been a full moon for them. And so on surface reading, I was like, okay, that's cool. Um, full moons are cool and all. Uh, but, but what I think God has done is strategically put judgment and the exercising of his justice under full illumination. Um, now, remember, like, this is a different culture. No lights, no technology. Darkness to them was not like darkness is to us. Uh, darkness could be felt. It was, you know, life was inoperable when the sun was down. In fact, theologically, the Egyptians believed that nighttime was when danger fell on them most because the sun god, Ra, was in the underworld and was unable to protect them. And so we see here God, under the illumination of a full moon, dropped death over the entire land. Egypt and Goshen, where God's people were, smelt and felt like death. Now, I don't know if I'm the only morbid one here, but when I hear someone dies, I always ask, like, how? Right? Like, I don't know why. Am I sick? I don't know. Like, when, when you hear someone dies, like, the first thing that comes to my mind is, like, how? How did that happen? What happened? You know, and, and usually I filter that out, and I don't always ask that question first, but it pops in my mind, and um, we, don't, we don't know how. Uh, the text doesn't tell us, so we shouldn't speculate. It doesn't tell us whether it was natural, they woke up, you know, they never woke up from their sleep. We don't know. 
But the text made it very clear. There was not a house where someone was not dead. Um, let me, I kinda, I'm just going to roll right into kind of making some closing connections for us today. Um, see, salvation for the believer, like for anyone trusting in what God has done through his son, is that there is an offer of life and joy on the table instead of death and wrath. Um, see, if you've, if, you've, if you've heard nothing I've said today, hear this. The wrath and the death and the judgment that we've been seeing play out in these 10 plagues should have fallen on all of us. Like this was not an Egyptian particular thing. Like this is a humanity in general thing. And when you begin to believe that, and then you look at what Christ came to do, it changes everything about your life. Um, do you remember how Jesus, um, in, it was the night before he died, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you, and if you're familiar with that conversation, he said this, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it written down or flagged. He said, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me. In other words, if there's any way that I could not drink this cup of death that you've put on my lap, God, let it be so. And the father said, there, there is no other way. You must drink the cup. And the cup was the cup of death and wrath. And Jesus drained it. He drank all of it on the cross. He left none of it for his people to drink. He absorbed and deferred every vengeful and just action that should have fallen on you for your rebellion and he took it in your place so that you could have favor and blessing from God. Now that is the best news in the history of the world because believer, no longer do we walk our lives asking God, are you mad at me? God, have I done something to deserve this? Because when we see the finished, complete draining of the wrath of God on the Roman cross for us, we can with all affirmation and confidence say, God has absorbed it all for me and it no longer looms on my head. The Bible tells us that these wraths, these, these forms of wrath and judgment and plagues are actually coming back. And I would be remiss and irresponsible if I were not to remind you of that today. In the final chapter of God's scriptures, in Revelation chapter 16, it describes bowls of wrath, and they are strikingly similar to the things that happened in Egypt boils and hail and fire. And it's this picture of God's final and complete judgment falling on an unbelieving world. Everyone, young, old, man, woman, child will face judgment. But to the one who clings to the work on that cross, 
to the one who believes the cup has been drained, salvation is yours. And it's from the Lord. And praise God for it. Let's praise Him. Father, I know I am so guilty of light, just making light of my sin and um, casually thinking it's just, you know, doing the wrong thing or thinking the wrong thought, but it's so much deeper than that. And Father, I pray that through this, through these last few weeks that we've spent talking about judgment and heavy and weighty things, Lord, that you would make the work of your son that much heavier for us. That we would look to him in new ways. And that we would no longer have that song, that quote in our head that's asking constantly around every corner, God, are you mad at me? Have I done something to disturb you? Lord, we thank you for Jesus who took it all absorbed it all, drank it all, so that we never would have to taste that. Lord, help us to believe that even more today. We pray these things in his name. Amen.